Hi, I'm Scott. And I'm Seth. And I'm Aaron. And we're track walking. Uh, tonight we have, I didn't even practice this, we have a gentleman who has very nice taste in bourbon, uh, likes gold underneath his cars, uh, owns a specialty race shop, and has resting serious face, Aaron Lichty. <laughs> How's that? That's a fair introduction, I guess. But like a stereotypical one. Yeah, I mean, you know, pick all the uh, the low lights, basically, and throw them in yeah. there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Aaron, you and I have been th- talking a little more recently uh, about life and race cars and uh, nonsense. And yeah. one of the things we've been talking about recently, not just about GLTC, about but about racing in general, is... Motorsport. Motorsport, yes. Is the themes of community and individualism kind of within motorsports, kind of the hallmarks of each of them, how they can interact with each other. Exactly. Balance. Um, How can you encourage one or the other stuff like that? Um, So I guess like the, a place to start would be where, what do you see like in motorsport writ large um, with just drivers looking out for themselves? What are some of the hallmarks that you see around the, the paddock and in history there? Man, that's uh, where do you begin, right? Yeah. You jumped right into it here. Yeah, I, I mean, let's, like let's go. Where, where do you start? Like, so yeah, you and I talked last week when we weren't able to record this show and, I told you that I didn't want to talk a bunch about myself and I'd rather talk about, uh, you know, some kind of subject matter or something more conversational. And we, it's something that you and I've talked about privately. Um, this, like this balance and this, you know, whether it's a balance, whether it's a competition, whether it's a tug of war between individualism and collectivism and a number of people that we race with, I've had these conversations with, especially if I think that they may have some, you know, interesting experience or if I kind of pick up on, on, some attitude of theirs that suggests to me that they're balancing this, you know, interestingly in a way that I might learn from. Mm. But I think the way, the place we start with what you just said is that motorsports is at least on face value, a individual sort of sport, right? Uh, at least for the most part. And I'm sure anybody listening, well, it's not really an individual sport. And I'm like, but the accolades are assigned individually. Right. Um, so like oftentimes attention is, is gifted individually. I mean, how do people, you know, garner that individual attention, um, in, in a negative way, right? Like maybe aggressive driving, like, uh, attention grabbing, uh, risks taking, mm-hmm. um, on the racetrack, things of that nature. Um, but there's other ways we do it, like might make our cars look cooler, right. So that they, um, you know, stand out. Um, yep. some people raise their voices for attention, right. There's lots of, <laughs> lots of ways to, to garner sort of individual attention. And really there's nothing wrong with that. Like in so many ways it's applauded in motorsports. Um, and again, I, I don't think you can take that away from the sport. It's like, it's, it's endemic. Um, the real challenge is h- how do you bring it all together into the collective and why isn't it just 
uh, an every man for himself sort of um, uh, last man standing sort of attitude. And I think that's one of the cool things that, you know, maybe it's not an individual theories or individual series, but grid life has definitely got me thinking about that a lot more. Um, you know, it's something that I can't take credit for the idea. It's like, it, it's been kind of pushed into my brain um, through the the culture and the attitudes there. And it's something that I've had to face. Like how, how do you balance that? With, with racing, I've been, I've been continually learning about game theory, which essentially is like, how do you score things? And when you assign numbers, there comes what comes with that is an enormous sense of what's importance and mm-hmm. where do you place value. And in racing, it the game theory is pretty present. You have a finishing order, you have your podium ceremony, which garners garnishes a lot of attention. Um, accolades, praise, um, jealousy, you know, the, the whole thing. Um, and people, and we can get into this maybe a little bit later, but I guess the higher up you finish, the better. I mean, it's, you are immediately ordered in your skill and competence based on your finishing order. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like you have to, you have to literally stand in line, right? Like it's this, rough. This is, but the, the weird thing is like the guy and, and I know, I know there are some people that like, if they were here on the show, they could agree. Oftentimes the guy at the front of the line doesn't feel the best out of all the people in line. Right. Yes. And it's not because he did anything wrong. Like there's a, there's sometimes a guilt that comes with individual success. If, you're interested and concerned with the collective. Um, you know, whether you, you mentioned Andy having been on the show, like whether it's Andy who's worried about the seven or eight other cars that he prepared. And I know that's the same for a meal on a, on a given weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no, there's no joy in winning. If a car that you, um, you know, are responsible for had to drop out of the race with a mechanical or something like that. Um, or even if it's just, uh, you know, someone like Tom who won so many races. And I know like at some point it, it feels, um, it, it, I don't want to put words in Tom's mouth, but like at some point it feels a little empty if you're getting all of that attention. Um, and it, it feels like maybe it's hard to share it with other people, but then that's where it gets back to like a team mentality. Right. So mm-hmm. if you have other people that you're working with to better your cars, you can share that success with them a little bit. Um, if you're working with other drivers, um, you know, trying to coach some of improve them, you can share that success a little bit. And I think that that makes it more, um, uh, I don't know, just more enjoyable, uh, even the individual accolades, um, but always like circling back to the collective. Why, why is there even a desire to do that? Right. I think the desire to do that maybe stems from the hollowness that comes with individual accolades. Maybe the first one feels great, but like the 20th one, it, the potency of the drug starts to wear off uh, and you have to look for, for something else. Yeah. And I think the, the natural, certainly American way of um, feeding that addiction, I think is um, to go bigger next time to win by a larger margin or yeah. to try to, you know, you start at the back. How many places can I gain in a race? Like, like how do I, how do I make this challenging, but where I can still win? 
yeah, the human desire to be challenged. So yeah, obviously if, if you've won a race or something like that, if you're after the actual challenge and you're not after just the accolade of winning, uh, which obviously a lot of people are, it, it takes that, um, that desire to be challenged probably to even get to that position of, of winning. And so, yeah, maybe that's a, a healthy place to, um, um, you know, to kind of move on to, um, or at least a, a gratifying one. But I, I feel like there's something about that, that grid life culture, the GLTC culture, where there's like an intense sense of pride in the group as a whole, um, in the quality of racing as a whole, in the quality of the driver as a whole. Um, and it goes beyond the individual. And that's not something that I think necessarily happened by accident. I think it's something that's um, bred into the attitude and the thinking of the series. And, I mean, I wonder how many people are conscious of it, right? Or, but I, it does seem like something that is not happening by accident um, and that everybody's kind of trying to trying to balance and, and trying to grow. So it's a, it's a helpful exercise to think about, like, how do you grow that? Uh, that collective success, you know, di- differentiating between winning and success, right? Yep. Winning, there's one winner. Lots of people can succeed um, or lots of people can acquire some happiness or satisfaction from a race. Um, and so how do we differentiate that from winning? Um, I think another way I've, I've always thought about it, like outside of motorsports and in life in general, is this idea of or maybe debate over whether happiness is a finite or a infinite thing, right? And so there's like a scary category of people in this world. Um, I think that it's a relatively small group, but they think that happiness is finite. And what I mean by that would be like, they can only win if someone else loses. And I think actually on the most superficial level of motorsports, it seems like racing is that way. Yeah. You can only win if someone else loses. Second this place is, is the first loser. Yeah. Winning is finite. So winning is finite. Is happiness finite? Is success finite? Um, and how do we frame that in our minds? How do we balance that in motorsports? And so when you when you race with somebody who has this very like winner versus loser mentality, it's kind of a scary person to race with. It was a scary person to go to work with. Um, it'd be a, a scary person to coexist in a lot of places because they always think that anything, any good that you get or any success that you have came at the expense of somebody else. And obviously. Uh, most people I think try to reject that as much as possible. Um, it's something that we've, we've talked about, I think on a couple of occasions that there's a difference when you look at the drivers or people around you and you're trying to beat them versus you're trying to do your best and challenge them. <laughs> You, you still want to finish ahead of them. I mean, especially in racing, but like, yes, you want to challenge them. You want both of you to do the best that you can. And you hope that those circumstances on that day, that you're the one that comes out ahead, but you're not trying to beat them. Like you don't want to see them lose so that you can win. And sure. that is a, as 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 few of words i guess as that took to say like that's a really big sea change especially when you look at the attitude of a car on track um how somebody talks about their driving who helps them uh kind of all that there's a there can be a pretty wide gap between the the different personalities there i guess yeah, absolutely. I had an analogy I made once when I was talking to somebody about 
uh, GLTC. And I said that if, if you were to listen to a driver's meeting, you're basically, you're entering like a wrestling match and the driver's meeting would make you think that it was like a WWE match. You know, that you're just like, you're just playing wrestling. Like it's a physical competition. We're going to do some acrobatics. We're going to do some maneuvers, but it, it's all just play. It's just for fun. Yeah. And then like, there's maybe 40 of these wrestlers in the arena and like 10 of them are actually division one college wrestlers. And then like two of them are like roided out Russian Olympians, no offense to Russia, but you know, can't ignore the doping, uh, sure. doping scandal, sure. but it's like, there's two of those individuals and you're just trying to stay away from the doped up Olympians and the, like the division one guys, you're just like, go on, go on, you guys play amongst yourselves. And then everybody else is just kind of doing like the fun WWE thing and patting themselves on the back. Um, and I mean, I'm not afraid to call myself out for, for which person I am, like, you know, Adam and his tryhards, but, um, yeah, it, it's, it's like a balancing of personalities and it's actually when, when the goals intersect that it maybe gets messy sometimes. Yeah. And just, just every, so we're... everybody out there has their own things. That's the other thing, right? Is that everybody's got their own motivations on any given day. Um, so the things driving one person are not the things driving the other person. Yep. Um, and that's gets hard to build a culture when you've got different motivations. And like, I think on, on a certain level, somebody might be listening to this and being like, dudes, it's just racing, right? Like we're just driving the cars around the track it's, fast. Like, that's come on. But the, the so reason why this podcast exists is because it's not just racing. Like uh, really? us just driving around the car, like a track in circles. It's, it's who we are. Like how we do life is how we race on the track and vice versa. Like personality is on display in the way you drive a racing car fully for sure. Yeah. Like you can see it and, and mood is on display, right? Um, you know, it's not the same for the same driver every day. Yes. And I, I definitely think about that when I'm like sharing a corner with somebody like there's guys that I'm like any given day, I'd be next to them. And then some days you're like, yeah, you know, maybe today's not the day. And I'm, I mean, there's probably been days where guys trust me and like, you know what? Maybe today we gave Lickety a little extra room. He seems a little on edge. Just means a little more to him today. Just go ahead. You need this more than me. <laughs> That's fair. Um, and I, I think one thing that you mentioned is, you know, the attitude and what is and how things are talked about in drivers' meetings and uh, talked about from uh, on high, so to speak versus kind of in the trenches on the track and a lot of collective in the driver's meeting but then the individual inevitably is revealed on the track the and essentially for any culture like you have to have buy-in from the individuals in order to have culture and in order to like form any culture, like you really need the majority of those individuals or at least like a strong barely minority to like claim and hold a culture. So as we're talking about this, well, okay, I guess the first philosophical question I would want to be, would want to ask is like my natural tendency is to want to say the communal aspect of racing and the communal drive is more important than individual success. Now I can also say that as somebody who's, um, crap, I can't even say I haven't won a race. Um, I don't win very often at all. 
I don't win the big GLTC races. So this is coming from me. Um, but like, is the communal aspect of racing, uh, I don't want to say more important, but should that be valued higher than an individual performance? I think individual performance and success is like is short term and fleeting. Um, but I, I don't think that that makes it undesirable and I don't think there's anything wrong with aspiring towards it. I mean, if, if somebody wasn't trying to win, you know, it, like you said, if, if there wasn't some desire to try to finish in that higher position, um, then it wouldn't really be racing at all. It wouldn't be, it'd be, you know, it'd be a driver's head event. Um, be, be a but, couple Midwest guys like, Oh, you, you go ahead. Yeah. yeah after you. Yeah. Uh, so it, it can never be like, it can never be like that. It always has to be, it always has to be competition to be fun. Um, there always has to be some individual pursuit. And so I, I don't think you can fully divorce yourself from that. Um, I think the collective is like, it, it is the gray area, right? Like the racing is superficial. It's black and white, like how you engage with the collective. Um, I mean, I can just think of so many examples of how people engage with the collective. I, I hesitate to even call people out by name, right? Like, uh, even though they're compliments, right? I don't want to compliment one person, not compliment another person, but like, there are certain individuals, a lot of them that make an effort to engage after hours, after the race in uh, a jovial way that to me is like very endearing. Like the fact that you want to talk about the race after the race with me is a part of like the collective engagement. It's we're talking about our individual races, but it's like, it's not exciting without you. It's not exciting without me. It's something that we did together. Um, and regardless of the finishing position, this person may have finished behind me. They may have finished in front of me and we both seem equally excited about recounting the battle. And to me, I'm like, yes, that's what it's like. That's what it's all about. And that's great. And that's just this simple thing. It's not this big sacrificial thing that you're doing to create this collective mentality. It doesn't have to be completely selfless. It's just that interaction to me means a lot. Um, there, then there's the more like chivalrous examples, like your buddy's car is broken. I mean, when my car, I, I had a wheel stud break at mid Ohio and I'm a professional auto mechanic. So like I am capable of extracting a broken wheel stud and replacing it. And I had, again, I'm like, I'm hesitant to point people out, even though I want to thank them again, I, you know, it's, it, it's up to you, but yeah. I, I don't feel like it's bad at all to share the people who've been important yeah. in, in your life. It's so many people that would be like 40 people long because it's, it's so many people that have done it. And I don't want to point out one individual case over another and, and diminish one versus the other. Maybe that's me thinking too deeply about the collective. Right. But like I had multiple people come and offer assistance and actually one specific person's assistance was really freaking helpful because he had great tools for extracting that broken wheel set. It like probably cut the service time, you know, in half for me. Um, but he went out of his way to come and engage and see if I was helpful. And like, normally, I mean, if I see a professional auto mechanic have a mechanical problem with his car, I just figure like, just leave him space, right? Like get out of his way and let him do it. But actually them going out of their way, you know, being friendly, just checking to see if I was okay. And then offering a better tool for the job, um, what was super helpful. It meant a lot to me. Like, I won't forget what that individual did. It changes the way I race against them. And that's like the big takeaway is like, we talk about the individual, but when I'm on the track of that person, I'm, it's not like I'm not trying, but it's like the chivalry is as high as it can be in that competitive environment because of those conversations, those actions, um, you know, when, when you're down and out. Um, and, and even, you know, we're, we're talking about mechanical repairs. We talk about um, 
just BSing after the races, um, the, the barbecue and the grilling out the camping culture at the events, um, uh, the, uh, the, the willingness to help other drivers, you know, find speed, um, you know, the, the coaching, whether it's formal or informal, um, that we see around the paddock, um, the, the car, people who have the same car type, right. And there's like a little Corvette group, there's a Miata group, oh, there's yeah. a Honda group, um, and seeing those groups all sharing information to, to better themselves, they're creating their own little teams, their own little collectives within this individual sport. And I think that's been one of the most like revelatory things for me in motorsports in the last four years is like making sprint racing collective. Because for me, I always went to endurance racing for that. It's like, it's so obvious. You can't avoid it in endurance racing. It's such a team effort. Finding that in a sprint series is what makes me like doing grid life races. Now, when you say that you're a professional mechanic, you have owned your own professional race shop for how long now? Um, well, I've, I've worked at the business for 17 years and I guess I've owned it for like, I think maybe we're 13 years, something like that, 13, 13 and a half. Um, and, and I, I would characterize it as an automotive repair shop. So like I take pride in being an automotive repair shop, not necessarily just the motorsports shop. Okay. Um, you know, a, a diagnostician, if you will, like more than just prepping race cars. Um, something I always say on shop, like no egos, right. Um, you got a broken car, we'll fix it. We do motorsports preparation as a, uh, a substantive part of the business. Um, but, but ultimately like, I like to just think of myself as the simplest sort of embodiment that, and that's just a automotive repair shop. And I love that after all this time, you still consider yourself an automotive technician. Like, even though, you know, you obviously like work there and you, you came up into it, but you've owned the business for at least a decade. Like, no, I, I work on cars. That's you. You don't just I, sit sit yeah. behind a desk. No, I, I'd like to not. Um, and that's something where it's like it is the the more you're charged with responsibility for the business and the persons who are employed by it, um, and and the overall success of the entity, um, the harder it is to keep your skills sharp as a mechanic. And so I feel like. Sometimes I do feel very rusty as a mechanic. Like, I wish I had more time to dedicate this. I wish this could be my primary focus. Um, and fortunately, like with Jared helping on the front end of the business, I can dedicate more energy. Um, Emil's obviously um, a great colleague. Um, Ethan's learned so much in the three years that he's been at the shop um, that it does actually allow me to think less and less about um, sort of the uh, the front end of the shop or, or the management side of things and think of myself more as a technician. And I have to say, I'm definitely happiest um, when I can just think like an automotive technician and just repair things that are broken, which is endlessly gratifying. Just like, I guess, beating your buddy in a race. <laughs> well, there, there's a clear, there's a, I don't want to say a clear path, but there's an end point with repairing and fixing or upgrading, whatever it is like yeah. it, building, designing, fabricating, like Emil's uh, real special talents, like, creating things it's just cool yeah there's steps there are concrete things that you it that you put together it's a creative process i i fully believe especially the fabrication part mm -hmm. um and then you know you get to stand back and enjoy the a completed project like there are many jobs out there that just aren't done like there's never a feeling of i did this look at it let alone something that you can finish 
and like go enjoy like hands-on go do something with it and also go crash it which is the unfortunate <laughs> side of it and you fix it again there's you can go ruin it all really fast there's, there, there's a little bit of the uh job security in automotive repair that's what everyone said people say to people, well you know crash is good for you i'm like it's really not not at all good for me no. like crash repairs suck yeah it's, it's and, and like, you don't, you never bill one-to-one on a crash repair. You know, like, you know, everybody, everybody takes in the shorts on a crash repair. It's terrible. Yes, it is. Crashing do you, as, a, as someone who's owning and running a business, do you focus on the collective aspect of that? Like somebody successfully diagnosing or fabricating something that's difficult makes you all win? Do you? Yeah, absolutely. Like, like I definitely try to cultivate like that sort of culture in the, uh, in the business, but also just in like in general life, right? Like this doesn't just extend to, to motorsports or business. It's, it's sort of everywhere, but yeah, I, I like the, the analogy that comes to mind is like, I think of myself as a good passer. Like I want to be a good teammate. Um, so, you know, goal scores, you know, I, I played hockey growing up. So like, you know, all, it's always a hockey analogy, but it's like the goal scorer gets all the attention, but it's like the playmaker is the most valuable guy on the team. Like the, the guy with, you know, 60 assists on the season is more valuable than the guy with 30 goals. Um, and so I always try to be a good passer. And, and sometimes being a good passer also means letting other people have the individual success of the goal. Yes. Um, and it means enjoying that and just enjoying being a part of it, even if you're maybe the part that doesn't get the accolade or, or the attention. And, you know, you look at Ethan, um, younger guy at the shop, it's like, it's awesome watching him score goals. Like when he, when he doesn't feel like he's scoring goals, it, it's almost more frustrating. When you see him feel like he's scoring, you know, it, figuratively speaking, you're like, yes, like I love watching that guy feel that confidence. And obviously Emil's a really good goal, goal scorer, but because he's such a good goal scorer, I love seeing him make passes, you know? And it's like when, when you see it come in full circle, I mean, yeah, that's, that's what a team's all about. That's what friendships are about. And I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it, whether we realize it or not, I think that's what we're all after on a racing weekend in a really weird sort of way. Just because I'm curious, what position in hockey did you tend to play? I played wherever I needed to be, but as a, at, at the highest levels of hockey that I played, I played left wing. I was about to say gotta, you got to put the little guy along the boards. We need something to hold us up when, when we're getting crunched. Well, I was the, the way you were talking about hockey, I was, I was anticipating a wing role, but centers are the ones that put in the real work though in hockey i mean they really yeah. have to play defense. i mean everybody has their defensive responsibility but the centers extends deepest in the zone yep. and so that's the thankless position yes of lots of skating yep. i was a goalie for what it's worth the uh, ultimate thankless position you get no goals you get no assists nope. you only give you only give up goals yep you're just a complete negative yep <laughs> you gotta keep you gotta pat your goalie on the back yeah. I mean, that's another thing too, right? Like we talked about uh, things that like enjoying the collective, right? So like if you win a race, like lots of people are going to pat you on the back and, and say you did a good job and that feels good. But like having someone come over after a race that you finished like, I don't know, 15th and 12th, 7th, it doesn't matter. And just like say something nice about the race or a, a little pat on the back. Like, man, that feels to me just as good as winning the race. Yeah. So. And, and I've heard people who have, won a lot or you know been consistent top five or even top ten that if if they're just racing by themselves like it's pretty boring like it's not 
like yeah i came in this but like it's kind of lonely didn't really do much um, i've heard some people say they thought about slowing down to race with the guys behind them <laughs> um i don't well, know maybe they were done it, but yeah um well then you could be like jabay and like just start in the back just because <laughs> <laughs> Just you know, get to grid a little late. I'm just saying. Yeah, Jermaine starts in the back because he doesn't want to oil down the track in front of anybody. I mean, that certainly has been the case. <laughs> um, all right, so we were talking about collective individual and like the grid life um GLTC drivers meetings. How do you think then individual performance and is important? I think we all agree on that. Um collect some responsibility and striving towards collective the well-being of the collective is vital for not only the well-being of the individuals but certainly like keeping financials in order and having that be fun how do and this can be concrete this can be rules this can be tone how do we get more people to try to buy into the collective mentality of wheel-to-wheel sprint racing? Oh, man. Or, like, what's in place currently that has helped to build and keep that collective mentality? Well, you, you, you kind of alluded to it earlier in the conversation. You said, like, in order to have a culture, you have to have the majority buy in. Right. And so if the majority are bought in, um, then then you've got it. And I think the majority are bought in in the sandbox that we play in. Um, the I think maybe the real thing is like calling out what are we really bought into? Right. Like like what is this thing that makes us feel special? And I think just defining it like the, the definition of it to me is individual individuals that are there to race, there to compete, there to prep good cars and do well but ultimately are engaged in the collective afterwards. Um, and I think the big thing on that is like breaking down um, sort of clicks um, and, and just trying to make the community and the pie um, as big as we can. And I think that there's a lot of people doing great things um, to, to make sure that that's the case. And so um, I'm sure a lot of those people are super conscious of what they're doing. I bet a lot of the other ones are like, well, that's just common sense, man. Like that's just how I operate. And I think that that's, that's great. Um, but just calling it out and talking about it a little bit hopefully makes people want to do it even more. Um, and that doesn't mean that we don't compete on the track and and drive hard. And it doesn't mean that we we can't appreciate the incredible individual talents of some of the people that that we're racing with. But it, you, you just want to always bring it back full circle. We so we kind of talked about game theory and in terms of like what can we keep track of. Um, because again, racing is scored based on your finishing position, but there are also different ways that we can track what people are doing. Um, you know, one of my one of my metrics in the first year of GLTC when I was I actually just reread a post from that first year when I was still on a stock VVT motor in GLTC. <laughs> Like, you know, pe- pe- people would like be complaining about, um, you know, being under prepped and, and I went back and I was 95 horsepower down or 1100 pounds overweight. 
like <laughs> pick pick your pick your weight and it's like all right that's that's kind of cool um yeah. and like definitely a struggle but like all right so like i wasn't finishing top 10 that first year unless like tragedy struck the first half of the field <laughs> or you know torrential downpour took everybody out like it just i was not going to be able to score my my metric of success based on finishing position so the way that i did it would either be somewhere along the lines of positions gained and lost from where i started um, which would be focused more on racecraft starts things of that nature and then just simply looking at the cars I was finishing around, either behind or ahead of, and looking like how much power do they have? Like what kind of tires do they have? Like because again, like I in the realm of GLTC, I was nowhere near at the pointy end, like even in car prep, just light years away. So I had to pick certain things for me to look at to actually like see how am I doing? Because I could finish 11th in this race or 18th in this race. And maybe 18th was actually my better race by a whole lot of metrics. Yeah. So that's just like a personal desire to improve and to, and like, that's one of the things too, when we talk about like, you hear some people talk about season points and scorekeeping and things of that nature. And, um, you know, why do we do this and why do we not? And it's like, it doesn't matter whether you're winning or not. There's still for a lot of people, like a human desire to measure and improve. And the improvement doesn't always has, have to be a win, but just some sort of forward progress um, and improvement. And that's, I mean, that's one of those things about motorsports. It's like endlessly challenging in that category. Like it's incredibly hard um, to, to do it well. And that's what I think keeps a lot of us coming back over and over again is that there's like satisfaction is very fleeting in motorsports. It's mostly just really hard. So how do you, how would you like in your own personal racing, how do you measure success or how do you track improvement? I think like the, the like number one success is just bringing the car back to the pit lane in one piece. Right. So like that has to be first and foremost. And I, I mean, I literally think about that before, like, almost every race um like just you just want to finish the race make it to the end keep the car clean um, bring it back so that you can do it again um once i'm in the races like my individual goals tend to shift um i generally like tend to think about what the weakest part of my drive is whether it's the weakest part of my drive at the beginning of the weekend where there's the weakest part of my drive from a previous race and i try to improve in those categories so kind of similar um I'm one of those people that believes that like race starts aren't really for making a lot of positions. I think having an attitude that like, a, like I'm going to make a lot of positions on a race start is um, it, not sustainable long-term. It just ends in uh, carnage. Um, and so I try to think of a race start less as um, like an opportunity to make a lot of positions. I tend to think of it more as like a, a chess game where it's like, you know, positioning the car, making smart choices, um, but I can remember a time where like, I felt like I was shedding a lot of positions on race starts. And so I can remember at one point my like goal was just to like, not lose a position on a race start you know, to, to make, and that didn't mean being more aggressive. It meant like sure. making better positional changes with the car. Um, I had a lot of trouble in the Porsche getting heat in the front tires. 
um, for some of the races. So I can think of a weekend where the goal was like, I really got to figure out a way as a driver to get this car to just come on quicker. Um, and so I can remember working on that. Um, I think I'm pretty soft on entries to corners. I don't drive entries of corners very hard. Um, I kind of like roll speed through the apex, um, get a pretty good drive off. Um, but like attacking entries isn't a strength of mine. Um, and so I see some other drivers that are really good at attacking entries. So I've had some weekends where I'm like, I really want to attack the entries. The other thing I'll say though, is like, once the racing starts, you really can't do that stuff. Like you basically have like practice and maybe qualifying to do that. And then once you're into a race, you can't try new shit. Like you kind of have to respect the people that are around you enough that you, you operate with what you know at that point. Um, what you know you can 100% execute safely, consistently, whether it be door-to-door, whether it just be in front of or behind another car, um, because spinning out in front of a huge race field isn't good. Uh, bumping into your buddy's door-to-door isn't good. And so that's another thing is, like, I really enjoy doing test dates and practice dates where I can just focus on breaking technique or the entry portion of corners um, the whole weekend where, yeah, race weekends can be a little frustrating in that sometimes you get, like, 20 minutes of practice and then you're like, well... This is what I got. Yeah, I want to I want to pause on that and talk about it because it's something you and I have talked about and I think it's important because I remember hearing you say that for the first time, I think a couple of years ago and kind of getting frustrated by it. Um, but I think what that heralds back to is in race situations um, that there's some that there's some sort of a social contract that's going on yeah. that you're kind of agreeing that if one car is occupying a space, two cars cannot occupy that same space. Sure. Uh, if you do, either things get wrecked, maybe people get hurt, but like thing generally undesirable things happen when that happens like you you have certain expectations when you enter a corner with somebody and you have certain obligations when you enter a corner with somebody and, and i so, think and i think that's where some of those specific wording goes to serve this communal drive in gltc is like there are no overlap rules in gltc for a very specific reason like this isn't a legal battle. Like you can't talk about I had twenty five percent versus thirty percent. Um, I left him three quarters of a car width. And, you know you can't. You don't get to argue those. Did and you? It doesn't matter if you're arguing with a crashed up race car, right? Like if you turn in yes. with a guy who had ten percent of overlap with you, like that's enough to crash up some race cars. And you can argue about who was right or wrong, but right, got crashed and. Cars, so. And part of what I like about grid life is like, if you think you have overlap, just leave space because the worst you could be is wrong. And no, and nobody gets, nobody gets it. Like you're wrong. And like, maybe you don't have the entry speed that you would have otherwise. Yeah. There's, there, there, there really is no harm in leaving space if you think there's any question of whether there could be overlap. And I guess the harm would be you, you could potentially shed a position that otherwise you could have closed off. I've seen uh, – so like, I think a lot of people's guilty pleasure is uh, uh, comment sections of any sort of public discourse, right? Um, so I saw like some comments on – Go on. A, well, yeah, it was like an early, early YouTube video of a GLTC race. 
And um, I can't remember who the racers were in question. I don't think that I was one of them, but they were like, man, he could have closed the door in, in such and such corner. And the, and the individual that could have closed the door ended up losing the position. And like the commenter is right. Like he could have closed the door. The other car would have been forced to concede the position, but they would have been forced to concede the position to prevent the collision. Um, and then that probably would have been the end of the race. But like the person who left the door open, invited the battle, ultimately lost the position. I think they had a better race for it. I think they had a safer race for it. I think that individual questioned after the race would have said that they were glad they did what they did, that they haven't had a great time. And if given the choice to do it again, they do it all over again. And so, yeah, opening doors, leaving lanes is not only good sound, safe judgment. It's also a good way to make sure you have really fun races. It may not be the best way to make sure you win every race, but it's a pretty good way to make sure you don't have a crashed up race car and that you have a good time. And the truth is, if you extend that chivalry to someone, they're going to extend it back. And if you're the faster driver, you're going to end up out in front. It's the racing with, not against. Um, yeah, you know, competing for for the the, the challenge, um, for the for the camaraderie, for the battle, not not just for the position. You know, the type of things we talk about in the drivers' meetings. And talking about the a driver progress um, over the course of an actual race weekend, I remember that rubbing me the wrong way. But ultimately, I think the concern there is for is in that social contract for the group. Is that if you are trying things during a wheel-to-wheel race, especially a wheel-to-wheel sprint race, where you don't have much time, the cars are typically very bunched up from start to finish, um, you're going to be trying things and seeing how they work out, potentially in front of or next to somebody, that is basically you're taking a risk and implicating the cars next to, in front of, and behind you in you attempting something. Yeah, and that doesn't mean you can't learn things during a race, right? It doesn't mean you can't improve skills during a race, but there are certain things that you can improve on and learn from during a race. There are other things that you should reserve for when you're on alone on a track together. And so for the most part, things that create more speed, more lap time for the car, whether it's squeezing the throttle a little early in a corner, whether it's, um, you know, uh, driving the entry a little harder or breaking a few feet deeper for a corner. Um, those, those have to be implemented into your drive, um, very cautiously in a wheel to wheel sort of setting, um, where you have obviously respect for the other people that you're racing. And so, yeah, when I go out in a practice session, like yeah, I'll throw that thing around, try to figure out what I can and what I can't do. But like once the green flag drops in the first race, my personal feeling is that I have to rely on what I know and what I'm confident I can execute hundred percent and trying to take risks or, or chances on accomplishing things that I'm not certain I can do, you know, from a driving standpoint in a corner is, um, just a huge risk to everybody on the track. And I don't know, I, I don't want to use too strong a language, but I always consider it just like kind of disrespectful and, and kind of like very much a me mentality. We see it sometimes like guys just driving out of his head, trying to stay in front of a group of people. And you're just like, dude, you got it. Like you got to give it up. Um, and a lot of times the guys behind them, the, their maturity will shine through and they, you can just see them like coming, give the dude a little more space, try to get a little more clever um, about how they pass him. But yeah, it's, it's not fun encountering somebody who's, driving outside of their sort of playbook and, and their knowledge base during a race. I remember you having that conversation with me during a uh, 
it's either qualifying or practice, maybe a gingerman, but you know, it was, it was either the first or second year. And of course, you know, I see Aaron Lichty in my mirrors and it's like, oh, cool. Um, and, and I remember like, you didn't come up to me like with intent, but when we met in paddock at some point, you're like, you know, just usually, you know, if I see a car in my mirror, um, who may or may not be faster, I usually dial it back just a little bit to be sure I'm driving within my means. And I'm like, cool message received. <laughs> yeah. You would see that. You do see that a lot sometimes that like, I, like from the driver's seat, like you, you almost feel bad. It's like you made them nervous or something, but I think, yeah, a lot of times, like if you're coming up behind somebody, they're like, okay, now I've got to push it. Like, this is my last moment to like find that speed. And I'm just like, you know what? Like I, when I'm around other people on the track, I'm like break 10 feet sooner, like just a little softer, a little more cautious. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I guess maybe I'm not like other people in that regard and maybe that's not the best way to be, but, um, I don't know. Maybe I'm too embarrassed to like making a mistake in front of somebody. That's all. That's all it really comes down to. Okay. It's not some chivalry. I'm just too embarrassed of, <laughs> of somebody. Sure. Um, so where, where and how did you actually get into motorsports? Like if you've been in, if you've been a automotive technician and mechanic for, you said 17 years or at least yeah. at that particular shop. Yeah. Like 16, 17 years. Like mm-hmm. how, so how did you get into actual motorsports in the first place? Uh, it's a little bit of a convoluted path and it. And it's probably, um, probably like it is for a lot of people or maybe it's not like one single influence, but, um, like my father, uh, was into go-karting when I was a kid. Um, and so he would take us to the go-kart track and this is when I was like, you know, seven, eight years old. Yeah. Um, and then it, it wasn't as popular with the go-kart racing that we were doing for like young, young kids to drive like seven and eight year olds, at, at least where we went go-karting, like didn't drive the carts. But once you were like 10, 11, 12 years old, it was pretty common. And so then I start dabbling in the carts but it was always a hobby for me. Like hockey was the, was the big sport. So it wasn't like some like Lewis Hamill karting protege. It was just like some fun thing that I sometimes did with my dad. And it was something that my dad did so that my mom wouldn't yell at him for going to the go-kart track. If he took kids with him. Um, and so I dabbled in some go-karts when I was young. Um, and that definitely like was probably a bit of an influence. Um, when I was in high school, I had a, a really strange acquaintance who, um, while I was in high school, raced in the Speed World Challenge. Um, he had, uh, he had oh, wow. a, a website that had like made some money for himself, and he bought a R34 GTR from Nismo and raced it in World Challenge. That was probably another influence um, that first got me looking at like sports car racing um, and touring car racing. I remember watching like all the British Touring Car Championships um, back in like the early 2000s and thinking that was really cool. Yeah, uh, and then. Uh, uh, from there, I wanted to get on the racetrack and um, I liked like import cars, but I recognized that Miatas were really like good, inexpensive track cars. And so um, made some friends with some people that had um, back then it was S2000s, like big S2000 guy. Um, and then the Miatas were just cheaper to run and operate. And so transitioned to those um, and made some good friends when I was pretty young that were a lot older than me, like in their 40s. Um, and uh, some of them had um motorsports businesses, you know, whether they were prep shops or automotive repair shops. Um, and then it, it got me kind of thinking down that as a potential career path. Um, and then I went to school and got an economics degree and then I went to law school and I hated law school. Um, and, uh, I, uh, was working part-time, 
um, in a shop at that time, and then just decided to make that my full-fledged career. Did you ever, when you were karting and um, playing hockey, because I know hockey definitely have its levels of competitiveness, and it can get really serious in almost any age group that you enter while you were doing the two did you ever like connect the competitiveness of hockey to karting or was karting just like the fun thing you did with your dad uh i definitely connected the two <laughs> uh like like all like from day one okay um and, and it was kind of like what you alluded to earlier in the conversation about like your personality is kind of on display when you're driving a car and like in some of your mannerisms, your behaviors. Um, and, and hockey, I mean, it's the same thing. It's, it's obviously like very much on display. There's also like the punishing fact that in hockey, if you kind of step out of line, um, sure you can get a penalty, but you can also just get punched in the face <laughs> and in racing. Like if you step really far out of line, you can end up in a wall at an extremely high rate of speed. And so like that, that threat of danger is, is present in both sports um, that, that idea that you have to compete with the people that you share an arena with, or that you share a track with, but you also have to, you, you also ultimately are like bound by some sort of honor code with those individuals. And hockey is very much that way. Like you rub somebody the wrong way in a hockey rink, the rest of that game will be painful for you. And as much as everybody's competing, there is a certain respect and code with how you, um, distribute those sort of physical punishments. Um, and so it was always about being competitive, but just staying on the right side uh, of the law. And I think in motorsports, it's often the same way. I mean, you can get away with driving like a jerk for a short period of time, but it's like, it catches up with you and it, it may catch up with you with a banged up race car. It may just catch up with you by not really having any friends in the paddock when everybody else is having those good, uh, sort of collective, um, you know, sort of hangout times. Um, but yeah, I think I've always connected like the, the collective, um, sort of attitudes, uh, competing in, in both sports, but then there's a lot of, of parallels between like the skill sets. Hockey is a very fast paced game. Um, you know, motorsports is as well. Um, there's a, I mean, there's obviously a lot of practice and stuff that goes into being good at any sport that carries over to motorsports. You carry those things over. I think, uh, I think a study of vision in hockey to motorsports would be pretty fascinating um, because the way that you use um, not only like where you're looking, but how you're concentrating, because like you said, it is very fast paced. There are many people, again, occupying a very fairly small amount of space, but then you have these very specific tasks, stick handling, where's the puck, um, you know what kind of shot or pass that you can use that that that'd be that'd be interesting sometimes maybe that's a over bourbon one evening um let's talk about where like when you're receiving a pass when do you stop looking at the puck and when do you start looking at what you're about to do it's about to knock your head off. Yeah, right. <laughs> Suicide passes in hockey when your teammate passes the puck to you and you have to look behind over your shoulder and the other players' defensemen stepped up in your lane to knock your head off right at the exact time that you collect the pass. Suicide pass for those that, that don't play hockey. But, it, I mean, the, the long and the short of that is, like, taking something that's really fast and slowing it down in your brain. I mean, that's that's the challenge in motorsports. Mm, yeah. Like, the 
that's kind of the thrill of wheel to wheel racing too, is like when you're out on track alone, when you get really good at this, I think everything kind of feels slow. Um, you, you sort of, you're so calm in the, in the, and so methodical, um, that nothing really feels that fast in hockey, all your individual skills, your stick handling, your skating, um, when it's fast, it feels slow to you mentally. And that allows you to concentrate on all the things you can't control, which is, um, you know, obviously the other team and how they're going to try to obstruct things and wheel to wheel racing. If you get into HPD and you get into time attack and you get good at it, everything becomes so, so scripted, everything's so within your control that it starts to feel slow. And then you introduce wheel to wheel racing and 40 other loonies. And all of a sudden you have this variable that you can't control. And that's when the, like the sense of speed becomes much more intense. So hockey, it's the other team trying to knock your head off racing. It's just trying to get 40 cars through turn one. Bruce, I've, I can't tell you, especially in the first couple of years of GLTC, you know, we had a fair number of endurance racers come mm-hmm. into GLTC and for their first experience in sprint racing. And it was amazing to see pretty seasoned uh, endurance racers with eyes wide open after their first race start, just saying, wow, that was really intense. <laughs> yeah. Race starts are wild. I only did a, I only did two races or two race weekends this year, but my race starts, um, like everybody did so good. That was around me on the race starts. Like they were, I mean, they're always intense, like that, that quietness of the pace lap. Right. And then like all of a sudden when the green flag drops, just boom, all these loud exhausts. I don't have Justin Kelly's like side exit, like pointing in my, in my window anymore, which definitely like lessens the, the sensory, uh, intensity, but it's still, um, it's still a neat experience going in a corner and it's obviously every once in a while you got someone around you that, you know, is a little bit of a wild child and kind of keep extra eye on them with the mirrors, but like more often than not, I like, I really trust most of the guys that are around me. And I think that's always a great feeling when you can build that. You don't always get that choice. Um, you know, just depending on who you qualify and who you're racing with, but, but more often than not to be surrounded with people that you can trust obviously makes that more fun on and off the track. Like you said, um, and that was one thing I think this this past season, uh, the 2022 season, I, I think we lost a little bit of that. Um, you know, we did definitely have more, uh, not just like teams like under one banner, but like, you know, the types of cars. The, the field definitely felt like it got a little more segmented um, mm-hmm. and that there was fewer people kind of looking at race footage together. Um, yeah. for good reasons or, or for even like just, Hey, I noticed you did this. It impacted me like this. Maybe next time consider X, Y, Z stuff like that. Um, and something, you know, we, we're specifically planning, um, that is like we, like Becky and I are specifically planning certain things to, to wear, we're encouraging those conversations after and before a race and like looking at, um, and sharing video. Like it's not just encouraging other people like show me your video so I can see what you did. Like, here's my last race. What do you think? Like, you know, like please give me thumbs up for things I did well. And you know, if there's something I can keep in mind for next time, like point it out because, there are an infinite number of moves that can be made in any given race. And like, 
I guarantee you I didn't choose them all the best I could. Some people are more receptive to that than others, you know, and some people kind of come to it within their own time. So it's like, that'll be a challenging, challenging thing. But like you said, if you can make it part of the culture, maybe you can get more people to, to buy into it. I certainly don't mind um, talking about things after a race, but also like sometimes after a race, you feel kind of stupid. Like, does your brain ever feel that way after a race? You're like, I don't even know what just happened. Yes. Right. Like it's, it's sometimes not always the best time to talk about it. Yep. You're like, my brain needs a minute to come off of racer and get back to just being like a sound, logical minded, you know, human yeah. being. not everybody's wired to like come down as quickly. And so I think timing is <laughs> timing might be more important than you think. in yeah. some of those, uh, some of those discussions, I'm like Monday morning quarterback, you know, like, Oh man, I suck. <laughs> But Sunday, I just, yeah, just want to hang out with the boys and have a good time. Well, forget for, stuff. for me, it depends on the kind of race I just had. Like, if I had a really good race or, like, I, again, it's not even, like, position-wise for me, but if I felt good about what just happened, like, yeah, let's talk about it right now. Let's look at the <laughs> footage. Yeah. Like, let's go. But, like, if I was mediocre at best, like, I I need a minute. Like, just, like it's yeah. mentally taxing it you know for the 12 minutes we're actually racing like i'm tired after it like i need to get some water i need to like take that in um because i can't always tell you turn seven lap three here's what happened yeah a I lot a lot just happened when you and i've had conversations we've, we've talked you, you you always have these ideas and i, I generally think that they're good ideas but oftentimes I, there's like a common theme and I tell you, I'm like, that's kind of the job of a race director, you know? And it's like, it, it, it's sometimes hard to do some of the things that you want to do as a peer and as a fellow racer. Sure. But if, if, if you take those comments and if you can get the race director to buy into them, the race director is in, I think, a special position to, you know, start some of those conversations. Um, and, and because of their sort of, you know, seeming, um, you know, distance from the actual competition on the track. Um, I, I think it's easier for them to, to maybe offer certain feedbacks that would be hard coming from a fellow racer or maybe just seeing kind of like tit for tat sort of stuff. Totally. Um, so yeah, I think, I think funneling some of those ideas to a race director and if, if a race director is willing to take those um, and implement them, I think they'll be more effective than the racers trying to do it themselves. But I also could be wrong on that, but we can't ignore the fact that like, it's hard when you're in the race car to um, like take the, you know, 10,000 foot sort of view of things like a tunnel vision is um, prevalent. We get here, we get to face ourselves and what we see often is not what we'd hope. Yeah, exactly. What's your cultural obligation as a racer to bring in new people? Do you feel Mm -hmm. Do you feel an obligation when there when there are new people on track and in the paddock with you to bring them in, or do you wait for them to come find you? No, I, I think it's a little bit of both, right? So, like, that's probably part of my like personal po- um, personality is more to like I don't want to say hide, but I, I do think I kind of like reserve myself a little bit. Um, but I actually think you do have a, a responsibility to like reach out to those people early on um, and and just sort of 
obviously just make yourself available, not press yourself on them um, necessarily, but but let them know who you are and that you're available. If they need anything, you're there to help. And I definitely tried to do that more in like 2019 when the series was really young. And I can't say that I've, I've put as much energy into it the last, I did it in 2020 a fair bit as, a fair bit as well. And then in 2021 and 2022, um, I really didn't as much. Um, but the way I did that was, yeah, introducing myself, um, you know, asking if they needed anything, tools or questions to let me know. And then like maybe just subtly trying to influence their attitude. Um, you know, it's like, you're not trying to brainwash them or anything, but just like maybe interject a little bit of your attitude just so they know where you stand. Um, when you're on the, on the racetrack, you know, let them know that like, you know, the most important thing to me is that people feel comfortable being door to door with me on the racetrack. Like that probably is one of the most like points of pride for me. Like if, if somebody in the racing field was like, man, I don't feel comfortable being side by side with that guy. I would feel terrible. <laughs> like that would like cut to the core of me. So if anybody really wants to hurt my feelings, just come up to me and tell me that you really wouldn't feel comfortable being in a corner with me. Um, or, or maybe tell me why that is and, and what I can do better, because that's, that's probably one of like my biggest points of pride um, is just being a sound fundamental racer that people want to race with. Um, and so kind of letting people know that that's what's important to me. And I'm secretly kind of hoping that it, it will be important to them and it might influence their behavior a little bit. Um, but yeah, I, there's definitely a responsibility there. And also with, with like individual success comes more collective responsibility. And I think that's another cool thing we've seen in GLTC. Like as people have acquired more individual success, I think for the most part, you see them engage and collect uh, or, or connect more collectively with other people. And um, I don't know that that makes their, their victories and their skills to me even more admirable. Great responsibility or great, Great power comes great responsibility, whatever that Spider-Man quote is. I mean, when people like, if you win races, like people are going to look up to you. That's one of the cool things. But then the problem is people look up to you. (laughs) What are you going to do with it? Right. Uh, If we see that and like, look at it in professional racing, like the personalities of Sebastian Vettel, like, uh, you know, go through the first couple of years of his career to the last couple of years of his career. And it's, I mean, that's professional motorsport. We're just amateurs, but you realize winning winning is finite you know success doesn't have to be um the definition of success changed his attitudes became progressively less individual more collective um you see that transformation there and i think we see it in amateur motorsports um obviously on on a much smaller scale well the guy who's not racing with you yet and is watching goes that's how you win races and so how those people are winning races really is important for the culture of event. If it's, if it's all argy bargy making holes type stuff and you go, yeah, that's how you win races. Yeah. That affects the future of a series. I think more than people know, like something you, how you win a series this year could affect racing in three or four years because Excellent. the people who want to race with you are, are coming up later. And they're influenced by those things. So I, I do think there's a, a pretty big responsibility for, for how people are winning races and how people are acting. Yeah. And making this, the sport and the group long-term enjoyable for the people that are winning races means you know, setting a good example and, and paying it forward, which again, most people do a pretty good job of. Yeah. I'm, I'm impressed with GLTC that way. Um, it's better than most of the other racing that I watch. So. Yeah. And the, uh, you know, rules 
are applied to the front like they are the back and the middle. And, you know, it's because we've got a live stream and Gridlife has a major social media presence. Um, there are, you know, a handful of drivers who get a majority of the attention, um, which just kind of is what it is. I'm not making a value judgment on that at this time, but it's important, like Seth said, that how those people are doing things, because when you give something more attention, you are spreading those values farther that sharing and highlighting certain drivers is not just is not amoral that you are saying that how these people like that these are the drivers you need to watch and that what they're doing how they're getting there the amount of time they're spending blah 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 that this is that this is venerable this is what we should look up to and that's social media has got a responsibility to it that's tricky i think it's impossible it's not tricky it's impossible like <laughs> like i mean it, it's just yeah. uh it's such a hard that's such a loaded like even even thought process right like i don't think we as a society even understand like how our our motivations our personalities our perceptions intersect with with social media and, and how it influences us but i hope that um that people are more influenced by like their close personal relationships than they are with like things that they read or see on the internet. And so, you know, in a sense, like you're right, grid life, one of the coolest things about grid life is that they have this like great, um, you know, sort of media, um, just, I mean, just a knack for like cool <laughs> imagery. Looks, looks uh, cool. Freaking cool. Um, and they're really, really good at it. Um, and it's, it's neat to be a part of that. Um, but again, it's like, it's, it's kind of a fleeting, shallow admiration that you acquire from it. And, and hopefully, you know, whether you're getting that or not, we all realize that the admiration of our peers, the guys that we're sharing a corner with on the racetrack is definitely much more rewarding. Um, and so I don't want to take anything away from anybody who, um, you know, gets a certain amount of attention or does something, because I think that it's neat and I think they're deserving. Um, but it, it's more important that they're just, you know, at the core, good people and good stewards to the series, which again, I think by and large they are. Um, but yeah, understanding like what motivates you, um, what should be the primary motivation, what, um, attention, the difference between attention and admiration, right. Or attention and respect. Like it's one thing to get attention. It's another thing to have somebody's admiration. And I think you just have to ultimately ask yourself like, why am I acquiring this attention? And is it for the right reasons? Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think most of our, most of the guys that we're out there racing with are like pretty good, pretty good people at the core of it and pretty freaking good race car drivers too. Um, but also like, you know, you and I talked about um, the, the cross that you bear for the last two years with the, uh, uh, you know, the driver of the year award. And that was a, a way to recognize all those things that don't get spotlighted on a podium um, and how important they are. And I know from talking to Adam that he wanted that to be the, the most important um, accolade of, of the year. And I, I think it is in a lot of ways. I think that what comes with it um, is more powerful than, than winning races. Um, and so I think you do a good job of recognizing both. Yeah. And 
that's actually a good transition. What and something I wanted to talk, kind of get back to, is the whole game theory, like what you keep track of, what you award, uh, the things that you recognize are important. And Grid Life doesn't only recognize race winners, podiums, season points, that kind of thing. Although they are pretty heavily weighted, I will say that. Um, but there is a season um, season trophy for <laughs> goofily named bestest driver this year, <laughs> um, which you know we talked uh, Zach Lavoy received this year. Um, but there's also something if you want to make long-term changes, you have to do it in kind of bite-sized bits that can be presently felt and recognized. And I think one, one change that was made last year, I think, uh, that you had a heavy hand in was give a spirit of the weekend award to one of the grid life GLTC drivers who went out of their way to help somebody um or exemplifies the sort of culture that we want to see in GLCC. um did something selfless like put their car in a position to avoid an incident rather than like try to take advantage of something and put somebody else in risk um something like just had a hell of a time getting there but like persevered something and not only award them um in the same breath as the podium winners for that weekend but they also get the best prize which is oh, yeah. a, which is a free weekend um like if you win first place for a weekend you get a cool trophy if you win spirit of the weekend your next weekend is free yeah put your money where your mouth is right that's what adam's doing there it's pretty cool yeah, I I feel like that's a big deal. Yeah, I think it's a big deal too. I think it's another neat thing that's that's unique to the series, and it does help help build the culture and at least shift the focus back to that at the very end of the weekend. And I think that's probably part of why we keep coming back. What's your ne- What's this year looking like for you in terms of? Let's start like business racing. What are you looking forward to? Uh a little bit of all of it, right? Um, racing, uh, the guys that I like racing with, like my personal friends, I like racing with a lot of the people that we race with in GLTC. Um, you know, they, they, they might not be personal friends cause we don't live in the same, same geography, but it's always really fun to see them at the track. But my personal friends that, that live here in the same area, they really like doing endurance racing. Um, and they enjoy the spring weekends as well, but their preference seems to be for the endurance racing. So, I'm looking forward to a couple of the endurance races. Um, and then like most things in life, the second I've done an endurance race or two, I just can't wait to go do a sprint race. And then after I've done a sprint race, I can't wait to go do an endurance race. Uh, and, uh, so I'm looking forward to some of the endurance races. Uh, we're going to try to take one of these little Miatas and run it in the WRL GTO class, which is like mostly populated and dominated by the like FIA GT four cars. And so I think that'll just be a fun little challenge. Um, hopefully we won't um, fall on our face with that one. It's pretty ambitious to try to take a you know 90 horsepower hairdresser's car and run it against factory GT4s. But I, I think we've been at it long enough with the Miata that it's finally time to take on that challenge. And it's a different challenge because the challenge is less about um, pace and speed. 
uh, which GLTC, if, if you want to win, it's it's about pace and speed. Um, and it's really, my mind's just like getting the car to the end. Um, can, can it have that pace for eight hours? And so it's really a challenging uh, mechanical and engineering task. And I think that's something that I'm excited about this year. Mm. Um, in GLTC, I'm excited about it for all the same reasons that I am in years past. And then I'm also excited about some of the cool tracks that are on the schedule. Yeah. Um, I've not made it any secret that I'm a fan of the big boy tracks. Like I love the middle Ohio's, the road Americas. Um, it's cool to see Watkins gun on the schedule. Laguna is obviously just nuts. Um, it's unfortunate that it's on the complete other side of the uh, country, but I'd be lying if I said that I wasn't scheming, trying to figure out a way to justify it and get out there. Um, so I'm excited about those, um, those big name tracks. Um, and doing a few of the, the sprint races as well. And then, um, yeah, on a personal level, I'm like, I'm 37 years old. I'm not an old man, but because I chose to play hockey for so long, I've like totally wrecked my body. And so I'm just like, I'm trying to figure out how to like take better care of my body and my back not hurt so bad all the time. And my knee not hurt so bad all the time. So that's my personal goal. I gotta, I gotta take better care of myself yeah. so not fall apart. Yeah. Yeah, it's starting to sound like old man problems for sure. That's, yeah. And that's on like ten years too soon. Yeah, that that's not a criticism. That's a that's a sentence of recognition. Is what that is. Um, say what? How about you, Seth? Why don't you go? Because <laughs> because no, you've like, yeah, I. In my world, we're we're developing a new endurance bike, which we're I just got a bunch of parts for today. And um, so, with the group of guys I race with, we want to to develop a bike from scratch um, and do well with it, um, which is something we haven't done before. Our old endurance bike was a pretty was the the car equivalent of, of like a like a stock Miata. Like I put tires on it and I went and drove it around and it did well. And this is a full motor swapped bike thing. So it's a, it's a big project that none of us have really done before. So we're, we're pushing ourselves in different directions as a group and as a team. And I'm really excited about that for, for what it means as a group of friends to, to all step into a new territory. How long are the races? What's that? How long are the races? Uh, four or six hours. Most of them are four hours. And then the the big one is six hours. So, you know, trying to keep a, you know, an 11, 12 horsepower air-cooled motorcycle alive yeah. for, for that amount of time and not tip it over, yeah. break things. And if you tip it over, be able to repair it quickly enough that you don't lose time and... Yeah. You know, it's like any endurance racing, right? Yeah. It's not just about it's not just about this is capable of setting this lap time. It's about how many laps can we do in this collective amount of time and how does that affect us as as riders? What strategy do we have as riders? What strategy do we have as mechanics? Um, yeah, there's there's so much that goes into it. I deeply enjoy uh endurance racing little motorcycles. The uh, strategy super- aspect is great too, because it's like even when you're not riding or driving, your brain's still chewing on it right yeah it's there's a lot that goes into especially when we have races where you know after four hours you're only you know two or three laps different from someone you're trying to beat um so you know you've you've raced for four hours and the decisions you've made have come down to two minutes you know two minutes of time gained or lost with doing little things um yeah I, i love doing that um i love finishing ahead of somebody on the same lap after four hours it's the best feeling um 
And I want more of that this year in, in the way that we're doing it. So. Um, I think for me, I've got a couple, couple small upgrades on the Miata I'm going to do. And I, I had a few real glimmers of, um, mental and vision performance that I would like to get to more consistently. Um, I tend to enjoy those races a whole lot better. Um, don't feel like I'm flying by the seat of my pants quite as much. Uh, mental bandwidth is opened up. Performance tends to follow that. Um, but it's just more enjoyable. Um, kind of. Do you get to spend many weekends on the track not racing? Like, do you get to do much like HPD stuff? Uh, I've asked this question before. Yes, <laughs> yes we, I, that's why I'm smiling. <laughs> um, no, uh, not as many as I would like to. And I'm going to try to get to more um, because of the way grid life has kind of separated out their season into competition versus not weekends. I think I'm going to have more um, ability to be on track in a non wheel to wheel competitive environment that I think will be really good for me. Um, I've had similar experiences back when I was a semi-professional water skier that you can either do the course all the time, slalom course, or you can like go into an open lake and just ski. Um, and it's, it's good for the soul to just go drive. Yeah. Yeah. I'll go like, I can, it's been years since I did it, but back when I was racing spec Miata, I remember going up to Putnam once and just being like, I, it had been like seven or eight races that I'd done and I'd never locked up a tire and I, I didn't feel like I was giving up a lot of time in braking zones, but I certainly wasn't gaining time in braking zones. And so I remember just going to the racetrack and just being like, I'm going to flat spot so many tires this weekend and just going to do an HPD, just like trying to lock up. And what's crazy is like what you thought was the limit wasn't even the limit. And then when you finally do lock up, you re- you know what I mean? It's like you get so much from just going out, basically trying to make mistakes, trying to push yourself in a way that you can't on a, on a race weekend. And then, yes. like I said, like spotlighting weaknesses over the race weekend in my drive and then going out to the track and like really, um, you know, picking elements of the track to focus on in, in a way that you just can't concentrate on a race weekend. And another thing too, about like GLC weekends, we have so many friends, so many people we want to hang out with that it really makes it hard to just have like that mental alone time too. And so sometimes like going to the track with not as many of your friends, um, no offense to any of our friends, but it's like, it, it sometimes is really peaceful and, and, and good for developing and, and kind of sharpening those skills. Yeah. You should do more of it. Yeah. It's going to be interesting. My, uh, just a brief thing. My mom is, uh, getting an ND Miata. Nice. Um, and she's going to start taking it on track for the first time, their first time like driving on track. And she's not a young woman her herself (laughs) and she wants to do the one lap of america in 2024 wow so i'm excited about that um so are you gonna be your co-pilot um i don't think so actually oh Um, you already got cut from the team but somebody (laughs) else in this house is i think first in line oh that's great then Uh, yeah um so yeah i i think it's going to be interesting and you know Besides racing, um, just uh, 
I, I need to make some professional moves in my life uh, just in terms of like how I make my money on a day-to-day basis. I'd like to shift around to bring a little bit more peace and happiness to my life, I think would be, would be good. So we'll see. Um, I just wanted to share that this may embarrass you or not. I know I've told you in person, but I wanted to share something that I think was, is, is important to share in that it was pretty eye opening, uh, for me to see how, where your priorities were on a given weekend. And I think it shocked me to see somebody who drove at your level who prepared a car at the level that you do and to see where your priorities were so starkly is it was the last race weekend of the second year of GLTC. So this would have been 2020, I believe is that a very cold gingerman for the last race weekend season championships. It was the first year we did season championship. Soggy ginger. So it was always soggy in October. Um, and you you were in the contention, like you you were in the contention of winning the season championship, and you arrived with a really untested throttle body because us K Miatas had been eating drive by wire throttle bodies. And nobody knew why. All we knew is that we had to carry spares for the inevitable likelihood that it was just going to eat itself and you just have to replace it. And so you showed up with a couple different options uh, to test and see. I did have multiple different brands of throttle. (laughs) I remember, like, I think Nissan was one of them. Like, you were... You were throwing yeah. stuff at the wall and like, what, what can work? And like, is it was the one th- more resilient than another? Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the answer this, was they're not <laughs> exactly. It was, <laughs> was not a throttle body issue as it turns out. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was on a competition weekend. It was mm-hmm. on the last GLTC race weekend. Yeah. Where season points were like the new the new boy in town. Mm-hmm. And you didn't finish at least one race due to mechanical issues based around trying throttle bodies. The throttle body failed and it took out the driver in the ECU. That was it. I brought a lot of throttle bodies, but I didn't bring an ECU. Yeah, about that. Yeah. We we uh man, we chased that for a full year. Um, and it sucked. Um, that was an interesting one. I mean, mean, talked to a lot of people, um, did a ton of measurement and data collection on those throttle bodies, what was going on with them. And, uh, yeah, we, I think what you're alluding to a little bit is that we had discussed switching the cars back to cable operated from a competitive standpoint, and we switched all of our customers back to cable throttles. Um, so we took all our customers' cars, switched them back to cable throttles, um, because, finishing race races aren't fun if you can't finish the race right now make sure those guys are having a good time and having fun and then uh we left the uh the drive-by wire throttle um on my car and uh yeah we we felt like we were making some progress with it um and wanted to keep pursuing that and obviously it was really important that 
before the end of the season or before the next season. Like the last thing we wanted to do was carry that into 2021. Sure. Throw a lot of failures. And so, yeah, I mean, you felt like even competition events were an opportunity to test that. And yeah, if, you're, if your primary motivation is just winning races, you put a cable throttle on the car, but it's like, obviously we wanted to win races and do well, but we also wanted to collect that information and that data. And um, we felt like we made, made some moves to like insulate ourselves from those complete failures, but um, didn't anticipate what it could, what it could do to the ECU. And so yep. it spoiled my individual weekend from a competitiveness standpoint. Um, but we did learn something valuable that we were able to carry forward um, in solving that problem for other people. And unfortunately it wasn't like some revelation that weekend. We just learned another way that we could break right. shit. Oh. <laughs> we still had to come, we still had to come with, with the solution, right. but like, yeah, once, once we got past that, it was something we were proud of. And, um, I don't know when, when you, when you build these cars for a living or, or when it's part of your living, it's like you have a responsibility to kind of blaze new trails or to, or to push the performance. And sometimes you inherit the advantage of that. And then it's an awkward relationship with your customer who doesn't have that part on their car that we now know makes it faster. And you're kind of like, well, I have to test it first right. to make sure it's faster. Cause I don't want to sell you something that I don't think is going to confer value but we also get the bad side of it. And that's a great story to highlight. Like we sacrifice our competition, our competitive, um, you know, sort of viability sometimes for that collective good, you know, our, our, our business and uh, motorsports community. And then um, sometimes we, we benefit from it and then we can pay those things forward to, to the people who trust us to service their cars. And I, I think I want to disagree with you only in the fact that like as a race shop, like a automotive repair shop, you absolutely can sell untested products and many yes. do. <laughs> yeah. That is yeah. an option, but you have explicitly chosen that that is not an option for you, but that is by choice, that is by design. And just it, it just opened my eyes to where all there was all this momentum behind season points and with the uh the front runners of GLTC and here you were playing a different game virtually that weekend from everybody else that you still wanted to compete. You still wanted to do well, but your focus was in trying to solve a problem so that more people could enjoy the racing. Yeah. I didn't regret having that set up on my car after the weekend. It was obviously disappointing from a competitive standpoint, but it was like, it, it, there was never a quite like that was, that was what had to be done. That information had to be collected and, yeah if we can't solve that problem for our customers and for our cars, then as far as I'm concerned, I'm like, we, we don't serve to win. <laughs> um, so this is, this is what we do. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a frustrating problem that it, it occurred for so long, but I talked to so many people in, in the industry. Um, and it was a problem that was afflicting a lot of people who didn't have a solution for it. Um, and so now we understand it really well. We understand how to address it. And that's going to be a value to us, not just with those cars, but I think with other, other engines and other projects in the future, um, it's another thing that uh, sprint racing challenges the individual a lot, uh, with driver skill, but like endurance racing just brings all of this. So front and center, the, the engineering and the mechanical reliability. Um, and so that's a, that's a really fun challenge. That's probably another theme of that year. It's like, we were doing a lot more sprint racing and a lot less endurance racing. I'm like, how quickly would we have figured that out? If we <laughs> had to make those things, last year? you know what, we yeah. just had a cable throttle back, <laughs> back on the car. For sure. So, but the throttle, the driver with throttle bodies are cool. I mean, do you have one on your car now? Yeah, I do. Like the auto blip and the detunes feel so smooth um, compared to you know trying to do them with a cable throttle and, and timing. And 
fuel and ignition. It's like, it's just, it's a really smooth running car once you get them figured out. But man, a K-series with the balance shafts removed is a fuzzy son of a bitch. Yep. Um, alternators was uh, was my big problem. But uh... yeah, we've, we haven't had many alternator problems. I think Emil's killed one alternator. We've done, we've done like, um, I guess it's like eight endurance races in total with the K series and we haven't lost an alternator. So I'm probably saying that I'm bringing our alternator shit on us at the next one. Were you using factory alternators or, um, one, uh, two of them I did, uh, mm-hmm. killed those, got a couple store remands, killed those, yeah. finally got a small mom and pop shop rebuilt one. Did that one get killed? Nope. No. <laughs> that one that one is mint. It's been in the car for at least a year and a half. Well. No issues. You know something else I've realized about these little K series of ours is like you can tell that story and somebody else who has a K series like similarly constructed yours is like, man, that guy's doing something wrong. I don't have any alternator problems. Like Maybe. that guy just wants to be a bozo. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, but what I found on these is like what frequency they choose to vibrate at is like anybody's guess. Yep. And like one motor will just kill throttle bodies all day long. And another constructed exactly the same has no issue. Or one of them wigs the throttle body out at 6,600 RPMs. Another does it at 8,000 RPM. And one of them kills alternators and one of them, you know, cracks exhaust manifold. It's like whatever frequency oh, yeah. ails, whatever component, it's like you just have the alternator killer. I have the throttle body killer. Um, yeah. We've all got different personalities in our case series. And, uh, you know, driving your race car to and from the track is its own particular kind of torture. That, that is too. absolutely an adult choice that you can make. Uh, <laughs> is uh, what websites would you like to give out people you need to say hi to kind of all that? Oh yeah. Um, I guess if people want to find out about the shop, we have uh, winningformulagarage.com and then, um, you know, we've got Facebook and, uh, Instagram, uh, profiles, winning formula. Um, and then, uh, obviously if we're talking about the shop and the business, you have to shout out all the guys that work there. That's, uh, uh Jared in the front, um, Ethan, um, our, uh, our young stud and then, uh, Emil, uh, Mr. Faithful. Uh, Mr. Do-It-All um, and a great group of guys to, to go to work with. Absolutely. Well, Aaron, thanks for taking the time to hang out with us for a bit and talk. Uh, for the three of us this week, I'm Scott. And I'm Seth. And I'm Aaron. We're track walking. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>